I want you to think with me for a moment of the most beautiful thing, the most beautiful view you've ever seen. The most beautiful view. If it helps you, you can close your eyes and picture that moment. The most beautiful view you've ever seen. Maybe for you, you're like a Caribbean type person. You're saying the most beautiful thing I've ever seen is the turquoise water, the white sandy beach, hot sand, but not so hot you can't rest your feet and dig your toes in a little bit. That's the the perfect view. Maybe others, it's when you're leaning back in your not-so-comfortable lawn chair, the fire dies down when you're camping, and you look up, and you see millions of stars, and it catches you off guard. Maybe that's the most beautiful view you've ever seen. Maybe others of you, it kind of happened by accident. Maybe it's a sunrise that you would have never seen if your uh, child hadn't woken you up at just a ridiculous hour of the morning, but you caught the beauty of the sun coming up. Maybe that's the most beautiful view you've ever seen. Beautiful views are interesting. Some are hard to get. Right? Some views are a lot, a lot of work. You maybe think of, again, to keep the camping theme going. I know we got some big fans of camping here. Uh, you think of a canoe trip, backcountry camping. Right? You think of northern Ontario. Maybe it's early in the morning, you're looking out over the lake, and it's like a sheet of glass. There's fog hanging over the water and a pair of loons. If you haven't seen that in real life, you've seen it in every cottage, the painting that's just obligated to be on the wall. Maybe that's the most beautiful view you've ever seen. But those views are hard to get, right? It takes days of paddling, maybe, and portaging, mosquito bites, literal blood, sweat, and if we're honest, tears. Right? That was the cost to get the view. Other views... Uh, don't necessarily take a lot of work, but they're still hard to grasp because they're simply hard to grasp. They're beyond our scope. Maybe we think of things like the Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls, the sand dune mountains of the Sahara Desert. Maybe we think of the northern lights or, again, the billions of stars that can only be seen without light pollution. It's a beautiful view, and it's not necessarily hard to get to, but they're beyond our comprehension. They're a beautiful mystery. Both of these types of views should draw us to worship. Both of these views should draw us to worship. It's our only right response, even if it takes a lot of work to get there or it feels like it's beyond our comprehension. Some passages in the Bible are like the quiet northern lakes. Others are like the Grand Canyon. Some take blood, sweat, and tears to find the gold, and when you do, all you can do is worship. Others are like the Grand Canyon. They're not hard to find, but you could spend a lifetime staring, and you know that it will always be beyond your capacity to grasp the mystery, but again, all you can do is worship. This morning, we are bumping into a grand canyon of a passage, so rich, not with beautiful views, but with beautiful truths, one that we could stare at for a lifetime, and I hope we do stare at for a lifetime, and all we can do is worship. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, unfortunately, though, has been a stumbling block to some. It's simply used as a proof text to support a certain position or doctrine. Now, positions and doctrines are important, very important. They're very good things. But if we miss the beauty, we miss the point. 
This is not a proof text. It is God's word. It's not simply a theology textbook. As we see Paul, the apostle who writes this letter to the Ephesians, he is overwhelmed with worship. He is overwhelmed with worship. This passage starts with worship, it ends with worship, and it's got worship sprinkled all the way through. Now, there is lots of theological goodness, but that needs to lead us not to a position, but to praise. We see even just in the way Paul wrote this section, verses 3 to 14 is one sentence, 202 words in the Greek. One sentence. It's like he just keeps pouring out the worship over and over and over and over. He just keeps one-upping himself as he goes. And the big idea, or kids in your little spiral books, it says key points. All right, Your key point, or the big idea this morning is this. The only right response to the mystery of salvation is worship. The only right response to the mystery of salvation is is worship. One more time. The only right response to the mystery of salvation is worship. Now buckle up, everybody. This can get pretty heavy. But Christians, I hope you come away worshiping. I hope you come away this morning worshiping our triune God who from eternity past to eternity future has made a way for us to be adopted as his children, that he's redeemed us, forgiven us of sin, and sealed us all for his glory. And if you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning, we live in a world filled with bad news. But this is very real, very good news. You may come away this morning feeling like you got annihilated by 10,000 mosquitoes. You might feel like it takes a lot of work to trudge through this. You may come away feeling like you just looked at the incomprehensible views of the Grand Canyon. But again, more than good views, this is good news. Good news that you can be known and loved by God, not by your good works, not because you grew up in the church, not because any reason other than he chose you to be his son or daughter. This might sound strange. I know it sounds strange. And it is. It's a mystery. But it is a beautiful mystery. So let's hear God's word together. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Paul launches into this monster sentence, this one big sentence, with a bit of a thesis statement. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now we could hang our hat on that verse for quite a long time and dig into it. In it, alone really captures the picture of worship and wonder. Paul says, praise God. Why? Because he has blessed us. And we can already be overwhelmed by the depth of this statement alone, this verse alone. In it, we see a picture even of the Trinity. We see the Father has blessed us in Christ. How? With every spiritual blessing. It's the Holy Spirit's work. And we'll see this unpacked through the passage. And it's this Trinitarian framework that John Stott uses to consider the truths of this passage. The Father electing, the Son redeeming, and the Spirit sealing. And those will be our truths that we anchor on this morning. The Father electing, verses 3 to 6. The Son redeeming, 7 through 12. And the Spirit sealing, 13 through 14. And we see that each of these sections conclude with praise, almost the same statement, to the praise of his glorious grace in verse 6. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. The Father electing, the Son redeeming, and the Spirit sealing. First, the Father electing. Now you may already, you know, be getting the goosebumps, thinking, oh boy, here we go. We're talking about, there's a lot of words in here that are kind of crazy. He chose us, predestination, election, The doctrine of election is a mystery. Now, mysteries are not unsolvable. They're just mysteries. R.C. Sproul, a greater mind than I will ever have, said this about a mystery. A mystery is something which is true, but which we do not understand. The Trinity, for example, is a mystery. I cannot penetrate the mystery of the Trinity or of the incarnation of Christ with my feeble mind. Such truths are too high for me. I know that Jesus was one person with two natures, but I don't understand how that can be. This is a mystery, not a contradiction. And so if it's above R.C. Sproul, it's above me. But the fact is that before the foundation of the world, God chose or predestined us to be saved. And that is too high of a thought for me. But that doesn't make it untrue. This is not Augustine's argument. This is not John Calvin's argument. This is God's argument. This is part of God's plan. John Calvin himself, when he launched into a 48-part series, the book of Ephesians, in uh, 1558, he said this, Although we cannot conceive, either by argument or reason, how God has elected us before the creation of the world, yet we know it by his declaring it to us. And so why do I affirm the doctrine of election 
that God chose or elected those who would be saved? Because he says so. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why does he do this? I don't know. It's too high for me. But I do know that it's according to the purpose of his will and that it was to the praise of his glorious grace. So let's swim in this for a little bit. You enjoying the tension? We'll just stay here. The Father electing. What are some truths that we know? There's a number of truths that we can affirm here. One, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He is absolutely in control. That's another notable thing you can put down. God is in control. God is sovereign. This should drive us to worship. God isn't crossing his fingers and saying, man, I hope they figure it out. I hope they get their acts together. All things work according to the purpose of his will. He is sovereign. He is in control. Even if we don't understand the mystery of sovereign election, he is king and only he can save. And so we can push against it, but this is good news, even if it is a mystery. So God is sovereign. Another one, God is loving. It says, in love, God predestined us for adoption. God is not a cruel, sadistic puppeteer in the sky. He knows our sin and our failings and yet loves us anyway. We did nothing to deserve this love. This should drive us to worship. And not only ask the question, why does God choose some to be saved? But maybe a better question is, why does God choose anyone? Why would God choose me? It's a mystery. But God is loving. God loves. That's just what he does. And a third point, God's election does not eliminate a response to the gospel. In this very sentence, again, giant sentence, but in verse 13, Paul affirms that a response is necessary says, and believed in him. Again, this is the kind of tension that we swim in. Grace through faith. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It's a mystery. You're going to get tired of me saying that this morning. But it's not incompatible. This is the consistent message throughout the New Testament. What must I do to be saved? Repent. Turn from your sin and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. It's hard to grasp, but it's not our job to reconcile. Charles Spurgeon, when he was confronted with this question, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility? He said, I never reconcile two friends. I never reconcile two friends. That's easier said than done. And we can jump to unhelpful conclusions. We can, uh, one of those is, to think that, you know, we might not be welcomed. We might not be welcomed by God. That he somehow wouldn't forgive us or welcome us as his child. And so many people get hung up here. Like, what if I wanted to be saved, but I couldn't? Russell Moore helps us here. He says this, God is not some metaphysical airport security screener 
waving through the security pre-approved and sending the rest into a holding tank for questioning. God is not treating us like puppets made of meat, forcing us along by his capricious whim. Instead, the doctrine of election tells us that all of us who have come to know Christ are here on purpose, end quote. And so all may come. That is the invitation. And so what does this mean? I want to affirm a few truths about the doctrine of election here. The doctrine of election should humble us. The doctrine of election should humble us. How could we be arrogant if we know we've been saved by grace alone and by God's sovereign election? Nothing is more arrogant than to think that we are saved by our own merit. God saved Israel, not because they were the biggest or the strongest, and so did he choose us, not because we've ascended to some intellectual height where we say, I affirm this mysterious doctrine. Not because we sin the least, not because we grew up in church. He saved us out of love by grace alone, and that should humble us. The doctrine of election should also change the way we live. The doctrine of election should change the way we live. Verse 4, we see, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, okay, mysterious, but so far so good, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Should change the way we live. Last week, we considered the truths of what it means to be a saint. If you are a Christian, you are a saint. You know, that feels a little strange, the language. But we've been set apart. Sovereignly elected. But we still sin. And so our identity in Christ should change us. It should drive us to imitate him. To be his disciple. To strive to live holy and blameless lives. Ephesians 5.1. One of the most challenging verses, I think, if we really think about it. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. This is part of adoption. We receive the inheritance, but we also join the family. And joining a family carries a certain level of responsibility. And our lives should reflect that. Will we succeed this side of heaven? No. But by God's grace, our hearts and affections should change. Christian, this should encourage you and convict you. What does the world think about when it thinks about Christians? We should be the most hopeful, the most grace-giving, gentle people around. And I know that sounds braggy or provocative. It's not for our glory or reputation, but for God's glory and reputation. We should be holy and blameless before him. We should reflect the one we follow. By beholding Christ, we can be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so our lives should reflect the one who sovereignly called us to himself. And this should change our relationships. Think of the church. If I am an adopted son, and Erica is an adopted daughter, she is my sister. We are a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. This should change the way we live. This should change our churches. And what a shame it is when our churches don't reflect the family that God has adopted us into. 
And the doctrine of election should also drive us, should drive us to evangelism. Now, there's been some big questions over the years. If God is sovereign, right, if God sovereignly elects, why evangelize? It's a big question. Or if we evangelize, are we undermining somehow God's sovereignty? But God has ordained gospel proclamation as a way for, as the way for the nations to hear the gospel. And so we can never make an argument with an open Bible to say otherwise. To share the gospel, to make disciples, is a command. And you may feel the burden as a Christian say, oh boy, that's a command that I'm not great at being obedient to. But the doctrine of election should give us massive confidence. Massive confidence. God saves, we don't. We share the news, God does the rest. We shouldn't pit things against each other that the Bible doesn't pit against each other. If you want a great book on this topic, on evangelism and the sovereignty of God, there's a book with a very mysterious title called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's by J.I. Packer. I gave one away last year. Now, I remember who it is. I was going to point them out, but that's okay. Uh, and if you want to borrow it, talk to me, or I'll steer you to that other person, and then you can get it from them. But it is a great book, talking, again, both about evangelism on its own, the sovereignty of God on its own, and how, again, they're friends, not enemies. J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And then finally, the doctrine of election should lead us to worship. Before the world was formed, God chose to adopt us. It is okay to live in the tension of that statement. It is okay to live in the tension of that mystery. But as we wonder, so we should worship. Paul models this in verse 6. The doctrine of election is to the praise of God's glorious grace. Now let's expand on what we're talking about here. There's a lot of things I know I'm throwing a lot at you here. But we see the father electing, but now the son redeeming. The son redeeming. Verses 7 through 12 say this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. This is our hope. We were dead in our sin. Paul goes on to expand in this at length through the book of Ephesians. We were dead in our sin. We carry the weight and the penalty due to us for our rebellion against God. And God saves us through his son. We have been redeemed. This word redeem, I know we don't use it very often unless we're talking about redeeming uh, coupons or something. But the word redemption, we've got to think of this divine rescue like the Israelites who were slaves in Egypt, rescued by God. A divine rescue, deep redemption. We too are slaves to our sin. But in Christ, we have redemption. We have forgiveness. 
Jesus paid the price for our sin. He came to earth to live a sinless life, a life that you and I could never live, yet die the death that you and I deserve. He shed his blood so that we could be credited with his righteousness. He rose from the dead, defeating death, demonstrating that God's wrath against sin had been satisfied. And so now when God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. And I know what you may be thinking. This sounds way too good to be true. Right? You may say, man, this sounds like a bunch of hogwash. But probably because you think this is too good to be true. If this is all true, how could this be right? And I understand what you're feeling. This is the tension. This is the mystery. But the reason we feel this way is we are poor in grace. We are even broke in grace. But God is rich in grace. It says he lavished it upon us. Redeeming, forgiving, lavishing. This is our inheritance or our heritage that we have in Christ. According to God's will, he adopts us and he redeems us. And the scope of this passage is massive. Right Before the foundations of the world and a plan for the fullness of time. As Josiah read in our call to worship, God is a God from everlasting to everlasting. God's plan is to unite all things. And it's on this scale. It's on this scope. It's beyond our comprehension. But brothers and sisters, what if we lived like this was true? We need to let our identity change the way that we live. We are bombarded with identity talk everywhere. We are bombarded. Find your identity here. Find your, you know, from within, from without, from wherever. But this identity that we have in Christ, it's said 11 times in Christ or some way, shape, or form in this small section, should change the way we live. But we can't do it on our own. There's more good news. God helps us, and that's through the Holy Spirit's work. So we've considered the Father electing, the Son redeeming, and the Spirit sealing. Verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, or the good news of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Again, it's another reason to worship. We see covenant promises through the Old Testament that God would put his very spirit in his people. And we saw that. If you were with us as we went through the whole book of Acts, we saw that time and time again, that beyond race, beyond status, God poured out his spirit. This is not a second blessing. This is a privilege of all Christians And so what does this mean? This means a lot. But in this passage, we see the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. This word guarantee has the same meaning of a down payment. It's a taste of what's to come. And as much as the graphic imagery might be there, this sealing word and talk reminds us of how a cat... how cattle are branded. They're sealed. 
with a mark to mark them off. Right? Or maybe less graphic would be an envelope with a wax seal authorized by the sender, unbroken. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, not outwardly, but in our hearts. The Holy Spirit in a Christian's life is proof to them and a demonstration to others of the genuineness of their faith. Romans eight fifteen through 16 mirrors this truth. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit provides inward assurance that we belong to God. So because of that, we can be held fast. This is another example of God's grace. He doesn't save us and forget about us. He doesn't save us and move on. He gives us his spirit, seals our hearts. And so Paul, again, he worships. He says, to the praise of his glory. Now, you may be hung up on this whole idea of worship. Man, that sounds like, okay, that's what you Christians do. You come to church, you worship, you sing a little bit, you do your thing. And we all worship. There's no one here that's a bad worshiper. We all worship. We just worship different things. You look at the obsession over, you know, boy bands. You look at the obsession over sports. You look at the obsession of your own status. We worship money. We worship our work. We worship relationships. We worship all these things. So we're not bad worshipers. We're just misguided worshipers. But the wonder that we find in the mysteries of the gospel should drive us to worship the only one who can handle that kind of weight, the only one that deserves worship, the only one who's worthy of our praise. Anything less than that is building a house out of tissue paper and lighting a match. It just cannot bear the weight. It can't bear the testing. When I was a kid, we visited the Grand Canyon. We had a motor home big motor home, and it was, uh, it was quite the trip. But we ended up at the Grand Canyon, and I remember looking at a brochure. They had brochures for air tours, for tours by air. And I remember thinking this was crazy. The helicopter tours cost like five times the price of the airplane tours. And I remember thinking, that's ridiculous. I would way rather be in a plane than a helicopter. Planes are way cooler. Right, Mike? Yeah. Planes are way cooler. But the reason, I was ignorant to it at the time, helicopters cost way more, is they move slower. They fly lower. They get closer. And so I acknowledge the fact that this morning, this feels like a couple second fighter jet flight over the Grand Canyon. And as cool as a flight in a fighter jet would be, how could we grasp all that this loaded sentence this loaded passage has for us but that's just it as we fly over the grand canyon truths like ephesians 1 at the speed of sound we encounter beautiful and glorious mysteries the god we worship is beyond our scope the father electing the son redeeming the spirit sealing 
we will never plumb the depths of those truths. But these truths should drive us to worship. They should make us wonder, and they should make us worship. The gospel is simple enough for a child to understand, but profound enough that we can and should devote our lives to its intricacies and implications. Gregory the Great said this, Scripture is like a river, shallow enough for the lamb to go wading, but deep enough for the elephant to swim. These are the truths that we wrestle with. These are the mysteries that we encounter as Christians. That these are the mysteries and truths that we proclaim. And this is the God that we worship. The Father electing, the Son redeeming, and the Spirit sealing all to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. God, as much as it is hard to admit and hard to acknowledge at times we praise you that you are too high for us. You are beyond our scope, beyond our comprehension. God, we thank you that you are beyond us, that we can't fit you in our back pockets, that we can't compartmentalize you into just a piece of our life. God, you are great. And so we praise you and thank you for your sovereign election, for the work that you've done before the foundations of the world to call us as your children, to redeem us and rescue us from slavery to sin, to bring us out of the muck and mire, to adopt us out of the hopeless orphanage that we found ourselves in. God, we thank you that you are our Father. We thank you for the gift of your Son, who redeems us, who rescues us, who saves us. We thank you for his blood that was shed on our behalf. And God, we thank you for the work of your spirit sealing in our hearts, giving us a guarantee, a down payment of our inheritance, a taste of what is to come. Holy Spirit, work in our lives, work in our hearts that we would live holy and blameless lives and that you would be glorified. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.